Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles. We are in the 15th uh, installment of our series, A Look at the Book. What we are doing in this series is giving an overview of the books of the Bible, book by book, so that we get a sense of the landscape of what these books teach us and how we are to respond. Today we're in 2 Chronicles, and while you're finding that, here's the key concept for this morning. People are flighty, but God is faithful. God is faithful. Let's review about what we know about Chronicles as you get to 2 Chronicles chapter 1. We know that First and Second Chronicles, when they were originally written, they were one book in the Hebrew language. They became two books when the, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And uh, they were the, the, the original book, the book uh, Chronicles, was written at a time when the exiles were getting ready to return from the Babylonian captivity with a mission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Hebrew tradition, uh, tradition tells us that it is Ezra who is the author of Second Chronicles, the same Ezra who's the author of the book Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's probably correct in that he was the scholar of the day. And he was writing the Chronicles specifically with the mission in mind to convince the people of their history and God's faithfulness. As they return to Jerusalem now, they have a hard mission ahead of them. But he wants them to understand why it matters that they are the people of God and that they rebuild the temple. Now, you'll, you'll remember with me that it was only the citizens of the southern kingdom, Judah, who are returning from the Babylonian captivity. They were the ones who were deported by Babylon when Babylon, conquer, when Babylon conquered Jerusalem and carried them off into a deportation and captivity. But Babylon, later on, was conquered by Persia. And so by the time we get to our current history as Chronicles is being written, it is the Persian king who is sending them back to rebuild Jerusalem. And Chronicles wants, is written to convince them that God is faithful to his people. First Chronicles focused on David's time and David's reign. And Second Chronicles pick up, picks up where the story left off with David's son, uh, uh, Solomon. And so as we come to first, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 1, Solomon is stepping up to the throne. And so let's uh, read verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 together. It says, Solomon's, Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom, for the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Then Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of, husband, of hundreds, to judges and the leaders in, in Israel, heads of families. And Solomon and the whole assembly went into the high place at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the desert. Go down to verse 7. That night God appeared to Solomon, and he said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And we've already noticed as we looked at the book of Kings that what Solomon asked for was wisdom, wisdom to rule his people. And that request pleased the Lord, and he gave him great wisdom as he governed the nation of uh, Israel. But I want you to note where all that took place. It says that Solomon went to the tabernacle of Moses. 
You sometimes we read the scriptures, we get the wrong impression. We get the impression that when David went and got the Ark of the Covenant and brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, it, he, it says he, he placed it in the tent, and we might get the impression that that is the tabernacle that Moses built and wandered as they were wandering in the wilderness, but that's not it at all. David built a separate temporary structure to house the Ark of the Covenant prior to the temple being built. But the tabernacle of Moses, the portable temple that traveled with the people in the wilderness wanderings, was in a city called Gibeah. And it was placed on what was called a high place. You see, the, the idea of the day was that the best place to worship God was on a hill. And that same idea filters all throughout the, the pagan uh, religions of the day. So much so that very often as you read the Old Testament, you'll read that the righteous prophets and the righteous kings tore down the high places. What it means is they're tearing down the pagan altars on the top of the hills. But it's not so much the place that is the problem, it is what's happening in the place. Because even here we see that the tabernacle of God is on a high place. And when, when Solomon builds the temple, he'll build the temple on a high place, on Mount Moriah, the Mount of God there in, in Jerusalem. And so Solomon goes there to this high place in Gibeon and he prays to God and he asks for wisdom and God gives him wisdom and then he sends him on his first major task. And the first major task was that Solomon have the temple built. And if you read through chapters 2 through 7, you see the process of the temple being built there in Jerusalem. And now we recognize that this is the first of three temples. Solomon's temple was, was built by, by Solomon in his day, and then later on, these exiles who are now returning to Jerusalem, reading this book and understanding their history, they have the mission to build a second temple. We call that Zerubbabel's temple. That was, he was the leader of that expedition. And then later on, there's a third temple, Herod's, Herod's temple. And that was the temple that Jesus would have known and would have, would have seen in his lifetime. You can say that there's actually just two temples in history because Herod's temple was really just a radical remodel and expansion of Zerubbabel's temple. But in any event, that all is getting started here with Solomon as he builds the temple. And even though the building wasn't fantastically huge by our standards, it was wonderfully ornate. It was intricate, made of the best materials and much of it overlaid with gold. Scholars estimate that the gold that covered the walls and the holy place itself would have weighed 23 tons. And that's just the beginning. It took seven years to build, and it was an ornate and wonderful place. But Solomon knew that as great as this temple is, and it's really not about a place as much as it's about the presence of God. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. And when the, the temple was completed, there was a wonderful ceremony of dedication. And Solomon prayed a prayer of dedication uh, uh, over, the, over the temple and the people who had assembled. But I want you to notice a particular portion of that prayer. In chapter 6, verse 36, put yourself in the role of a person who's returning now to rebuild the destroyed temple, 
who's coming out of captivity after being taken away uh, in exile. In verse 36, Solomon, 430 years earlier, prays this prayer. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are captive and, re and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned and we have done wrong and acted wickedly. Go down to verse 39. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Those captives who are reading this words, these preserved prayer of, of Solomon, now captured in the Chronicles, those captives can say, Solomon was praying for us. We are the ones who have repented and are now returning to rebuild the temple. In a sense, he's praying for all of us, for we are a flighty people, but God is faithful. And when Solomon dedicates the temple, God shows up in power. The Shekinah glory of God comes down on that building and flames descend from heaven, so much so that the priests have to abandon the temple and the people in the courtyards prostrate themselves face down before the Lord. And as all of this is recorded in the book of Chronicles, the people who are returning to the city are meant to remember that same God goes with us. And we are meant to remember that same God is with us in power and glory. And we are also meant to understand that both the king and the temple... You see, we have a hard time envisioning what the temple would have meant to a Jew. We, in America, we think of the temple as a really nice church. But that's not all it would have meant to a Jew. To a Jew, the temple was the holiest spot on earth. It was nothing short of the center of the world. Because the temple was the place in their view when heaven and earth intersected. It was the physical representation of the fact that heaven and earth are not far away, that they overlap right here in the temple because this is the place on earth of God's unique presence. And so, as God was uniquely present in the temple, it points forward to the Incarnation to the time when God was uniquely present among His people in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. And He walked the earth, and in a sense, when He walked the earth, everywhere He went, heaven was breaking through. And God was present with us. In fact, Jesus Himself makes this statement in Matthew 12. He says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. He is saying that He is the fulfillment of this perfect presence of God, the joining together of heaven and earth. And just like the temple was the place where God was uniquely present, so in Jesus that was true. And just to fill out the picture a little more fully, theologically, when you look forward again into the eternal Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth, in that combined realm where we will eternally live, the com combination of heaven and earth, John looks at that eternal city and he says that something's missing. He says in Revelation 21, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, the issue is never about a building. The issue is always about God's unique presence 
and his choice to be with his people. And the temple of Solomon points forward to Jesus, the God-man on earth, which points forward to the eternal state when God will be perfectly present with his people and we will be eternally there. The presence of God, it's all started though. All of this theology is kicked off in a, in a sense as Solomon builds the temple. And then he begins a rule characterized by what we saw, wisdom and wealth. The wisdom he asked for, the wealth he didn't ask for, but it came. We get a glimpse of his income in chapter 9. In verse 13 it says he received yearly 666 talents of gold, not counting the tax revenue and the other stuff that they didn't bother to count. 66 talents of gold is 25 tons of gold every year, income. And that's just the beginning. His wealth made him famous. His wisdom made his famous. So dignitaries came from all around. We read of the Queen of Sheba in chapter 9. And if the book stopped at the end of chapter 9, we would have nothing but good news about the dynasty of David. All good news in Chronicles. And we remember from the book of Kings that Rehoboam was asked a question from the emissaries from the north. The question was, will you give us tax relief? And the north wanted tax relief when his son took the throne. And Rehoboam, instead of following the advice of his advisors and saying, give them a break, Rehoboam says no. And a man named Jeroboam steps up. Well, if that's the way you're going to treat us, we're going to be our own nation. And Israel divides in two, the northern ten tribes and the southern two. And Jeroboam takes over the reins in the north. And in order to keep his people from defecting to the south, Jeroboam invents a religion, a religion that incorporates high places in which, where they are to worship. And he tells them, don't go down to Jerusalem to worship, and he invents this pagan religion. And if you read chapter 11, you'll read that the, the devout Jehovah followers and the priests of Israel, they flow down to the south, they, they flee the north to get away from this government-enforced false religion. And for a while, things go well for the south, but eventually, Rehoboam in the south forsakes the Lord. And we begin this roller coaster ride, even in the south, of good kings and bad kings, blessings and rebellions, repentance, on and on it goes. In the north, not one single king honors the Lord. They're, they fall away from the story in Chronicles. It doesn't concentrate on them. But in the south, it tells the story of the good and the bad kings. And we recall the fact that over a span of 345 years, over the span of 20 kings, only eight, uh, all the ups and downs of all the kings. But I want you to fast forward to chapter 33. And in chapter 33, I want to introduce you to the king who breaks the mold. His name is Manasseh. Manasseh is classified as an evil king. He breaks the mold in a couple of ways, however. The first way he breaks the mold is this. Generally speaking, if you were to add up the, the length of time the kings ruled, you would find a distinct pattern. And that is that the good kings reigned for longer periods of time than the bad kings. That's generally true, except Manasseh. Manasseh had the longest rule of any king, 55 years. And also, Manasseh breaks the mold in that he shows us the power of true repentance. He started very bad. 
Chapter 33, verse 1 says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And even that is an understatement. Manasseh is the most vile king of all of the kings classified as evil. Manasseh goes so far as to have an Asherah pole, which is a phallic symbol tied to a, a fertility religion, sex-crazed kind of religion. He has that established within the temple of God in Israel. Manasseh engages in child sacrifice to appease pagan gods. He kills his own son. He practiced sorcery and witchcraft, and all the while he persecuted the true prophets of God. Tradition tells us that Manasseh is the one that had the prophet Isaiah put into a hollow tree and then had his men cut the tree down. And that is what the Hebrew writer is referring to in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, when he says that the saints of old, some of which were sawn in two. But all the while, in this just the worst, most vile practices, God is trying to get Manasseh's attention. Go down to verse 10 of 33. It says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. The prophets were active in Manasseh's life. He grew up hearing Isaiah. He heard the prophet Micah and the prophet Joel, all of which proclaimed the word of the Lord. He spoke through the priests and through the Levites, active in the proper worship of Yahweh. He spoke through circumstances. It was obvious to anyone who would look that things were going bad, but Manasseh didn't pay any attention. He followed on his way of idolatry. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, and bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Who the Assyrian king was. A quirky way of demonstrating his disdain for the kings he defeated. A hook through their nose like oxen. He led them to, through the streets of the defeated city and then of his capital, and the message was this, these people are but beasts to me. And Manasseh went through that, humiliated and degraded and placed in jail in Babylon because he didn't listen to the voice of God. It says, there is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, a hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. And Manasseh crossed the boundary. He walked the line and he crossed the boundary. Again and again, the voice was there, the testimony was there, the witness was there, but he pushed it away. And eventually, God said, you have crossed the boundary. And now it's wrath. But Manasseh didn't know the words. They hadn't been written yet. But I want you to understand that some of us are walking by that boundary. You walk the unseen boundary line when you dabble in sin. You walk the unseen boundary line when you're in and out, back and forth, playing games with God. I'll do it today and I'll ask forgiveness tomorrow. I'm not really listening to the wholehearted witness of God. I want to go my own way, play my own games for a while. I'll get back to you, God. And somewhere along the line, you're likely to cross the boundary line from patience to wrath. But Manasseh shows us what it's like when in wrath you are truly repentant. In his distress... He sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea, so he brought him back to Jerusalem and his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew 
that the Lord is God. A fantastic renewal. He wasn't just forgiven. He wasn't just pardoned. He was placed back on the throne. But his son learned the bad lessons. That next king, Ammon, his son, was an evil king. We have to wait to Manasseh's grandson to see the revival continue. And in chapter 34, we see it happen. Josiah is the king in chapter 34, and his heart is after God, not the ways of his father or his grandfather's evil days. And Josiah shows us the truth of the verse we looked at last, a couple weeks ago, 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are committed to Him. It reminds us that God is looking for people to bless. He's looking to bless those who are truly repentant in the midst of calamity. And He's looking for the, to bless those who are soft of heart and ready to obey. And that was Josiah. When he was a teenager, he said, I'm not going to go the way of my father. I'm going to go the way of my ancestor, David. By the time he was 26, he saw that the temple needed to be rebuilt and so a great building project started. And you know what they found as they were working in the temple? They found the lost copy of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. All of the revival that Josiah was trying to do in his day, he didn't have the law of God. All he had was the writings of David, Solomon, some of the prophets. He had the advice of counselors. But he was missing Moses' writings some well-meaning priest had hidden it away when the bad kings were ruling so it didn't get destroyed and they lost it. But in Josiah's time, they found it and they had, he had them come and read him the law of God. And as he was listening to the Torah, he heard the promises but also the curses. And he, know, and he learned that God keeps his promises and he also keeps his curses. And they came around to Deuteronomy 28, where it says, If you do not obey the Lord your God, do not carefully follow all the commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you. The Lord will send you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to a sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking Him. And Josiah listened to that, and he prayed and he thought, I wonder if I have been able to appease God. By all the good things I'm doing, do these curses still stand? Is all of this still in force? And he had no answer to that question. And so he sent his men to a prophetess, active in the land, named Huldah. They asked her the question, is God saying that these curses are still coming? And her answer is devastating. The curses will not be in force in your life. You will not see it. Now, what would you do if that was the reaction? For some of us, we might be tempted to slack off a little bit. Say, wow, that's good. Whew, dodged a bullet. That's great. Can kind of relax. Not Josiah. He kept up the pressure. He learned from the writing of Moses that there's such a thing called the Passover, and they hadn't kept it for years. He instituted the Passover and brought the nation back to righteousness. But all the while that he was doing that, because while Josiah was bringing these reforms in the nation, around him things were changing. Assyria, the empire, was starting to crumble. Babylon had already escaped its clutches and was now rising in strength. And in the south, below Israel, in Egypt, there was a pharaoh called Necho. And so when Babylon invaded Assyria, the Egyptians sided on the, on the, on the side of Assyria to help against Babylon. But in order to do that, it was on the wrong side of history. And Josiah attacked Pharaoh's army in a plain next to a city called Megiddo. 
was fighting on the side of Babylon, uh, but his forces were defeated. Eventually, however, battle, Babylon was victorious in the, in the world struggle, but it was Babylon who Josiah was fighting for 20 years later who would come under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar and fulfill all of the curses that Moses said would come. Josiah didn't see it. And all of this is recorded in the Chronicles because it's the history of these people who are now going to go back. And he brings them all the way up to their present day in chapter 36. Go ahead and read there. Chapter 36, he's told that entire story of, of the ongoing then forward defeat of, of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And then he briefly describes how the Persian kingdom overwhelms the Babylonian kingdom. And then in chapter 36, verse 22, he says, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. The proclamation was that for those Jews who want to return, they can rebuild their city. The ones who are reading this for the very first time are the ones who have said yes to that proclamation. They're ready to go, and now they've been brought up to speed as to what has gone on before and why it matters. In two weeks from now, we'll return to the book of Ezra, and what I want to show you there is why a pagan king called Cyrus would make a proclamation in favor of the Jews. Uh, we'll be there in two weeks. But for now, as we step away from Chronicles, I hope you are reminded, as the chronicler wanted to remind Israel, that, David, that uh, God keeps his promises to David and to Abraham, that even though they experienced punishment, God is ready to redeem. And the love of God has been shown as, as his pattern in the history and his promise for the future. I thought as I read this over this past week, there is no one in this room, no one, who can sin the way Manasseh sinned. You are never too far gone. You feel yourself separated by God, but you're never too far gone. No one you know is too far gone. The person you're praying for, they're not too far gone. But what should you pray? Pray for conviction. That's where it starts. Pray for repentance. And sometimes what has to happen to get repentance is calamity. It's the way it is. Here's the message. God would rather have you holy. We don't have to. Listen to the prompting of God. Lord, the story of Chronicles reminds us of how you hold history in your hand. You hold the history of nations and empires in your hand. But yet you care for individuals. You know us by name. You see our stories. Help us to listen to your voice. And all your ways are perfect and your will for us is absolutely sure. Help us to cling to that as truth. And we will give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.